Hi, I'm Brett Terpstra, and this is Systematic on 5x5. Bandwidth for August has been provided by Cashfly, the fastest, most reliable CDN in the business. Cashfly delivers all of our content here at 5x5, and they really are the best. Check them out at cashfly.com, C-A-C-H-E, fly, and let them know you heard about them on 5x5. I have a return guest this week. John Roderick is back to finish the fascinating tale of his music career. And uh, when we last spoke, we were uh, we were at a point where Harvey Danger had just charted with a single, and uh, and John was still in the Bun Family Players. And I'm going to let him just pick up and start the story there. Okay, boy, now's when it really gets exciting. Oops. Just broke my chair. <laughs> That's that it's exciting, getting, huh? It got exciting fast. <laughs> oh, all right. Don't lean back. I guess is the is the lesson of the, this podcast. I had a car like that once. Um, right. Okay. So, um, yeah, Harvey Danger was the first Seattle band after the grunge era. Um, to like have a national single, and I include the presidents of the United States kind of as the last grunge era band because those guys were part of that generation and and uh obviously Jason Finn the drummer of the Presidents had played in some seminal grunge bands so even though the Presidents were not a grunge band they were kind of the last big Seattle band to have a hit and then there was a there was a dry spell of several years where it felt like the world had just Moved on. Seattle was a thing of the past. And then Harvey Danger had a hit with Flagpole Sitta, and it really came out of nowhere. Harvey Danger was not a big band even in Seattle, not even in the top 50% of bands. Um, They were an obscure kind of cult club band, really in the same family as the Bun Family Players. So we were all astonished uh, as they like had a number one hit single uh, and it in a way kind of maybe did us all a disservice but it reignited the idea that somebody could come into the cafe where you were having a milkshake and just discover you and say you're the prettiest girl in here I'm going to make you a big star um, I think we had all gotten used to the idea that, oh, you know, we're just making music in obscurity again in a dark corner of America. But this idea that a band as eclectic as Harvey Danger was, a band as, like, um, unlikely to be big rock stars could could have a hit, it, um, it, it changed the tone. And the Bun Family Players you know, was a band that I put together right after I quit drinking with my high school best friend who had come down from Anchorage. Um, The band had gone through several iterations. The original lineup was me, Kevin, my friend from Anchorage, uh, a guy named Ian who was a Boeing aeronautical engineer, and our drummer was a fellow named Lewis who was one of my old drinking buddies. And that lineup changed several times. Ian ended up playing the drums in the final iteration of the band. And we had a fretless bass player named Jeff. We were a very, very eclectic band made up of people with very different musical 
you know, like musical ideas and musical aspirations. Um, Kevin wanted wanted us to be kind of like a like a heavy a heavy funk band, maybe. In fact, when when rap metal became a thing later on, Kevin didn't obviously want us to be a rap metal band, but a lot of the a lot of the the tones of the music behind rap metal that kind of like you know like that was really kind of a big part of kevin's guitar style and then our bass player jeff was a spectacular musician but came out of a jazz culture and was playing a fretless electric bass so he was making you know he was putting bass lines on it that really put it into a separate, put all the music into a separate category. And then I was writing the songs that I continue to write, uh, kind of guy with guitar songs, a lot of chords, a lot of, a lot of heavy ideas. And Ian, as I said before, was an aeronautical engineer. That's really where he was coming from. Um, what, what kind of music do aeronautical engineers play? Well, thank you. Yeah, right. <laughs> Good question. Uh, they play music uh, that comes out of... Um, like Ian was most comfortable looking at a bookshelf full of three ring binders with <laughs> manuals for, you know, like machining. And he also approached music the same way. He was a, he was, uh, he was very interested in the technical mathematical aspects of music. And he kind of approached learning a new instrument that way. And when he listened to music, he listened to it very kind of methodically and in a, from an engineering perspective, uh, Ian was slumming. I think he didn't, he had a real job. He didn't expect to be, um, he didn't dream about being a famous musician. I don't think, although I never really got into his head, but anyway, they're arrived, they're arrived kind of at this same time, contemporaneous with Harvey dangers, explosive success, but unrelated to it. I arrived creatively at a place where, I was pouring my heart and soul into this band, which was eclectic and unusual and and um, awkwardly cool. I think the uh, the technical term for that is commercially unviable, but completely commercially unviable. That uh, and and that was always a point of pride for us and for me. But the challenge began to be that I could write songs by myself i could write entire songs and no longer needed um you know someone else to prompt me with like here's some guitar chords here's some here's a tune that i'm working on and then i you know like kevin and i collaborated for many years that way writing songs together based on his guitar parts and my vocals but I had I had grown and was able to sit with an acoustic guitar and write a complete song that was a complete idea. And so our dynamic began to change and Kevin would, you know, kind of try and add guitar parts to the songs I was writing, but but at that point the 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 gap between our artistic uh taste started to really be exaggerated like i would write a song and there wasn't room for um for what he what his instinct was and he didn't really like the the atonal or the 
intricate multi layers of melodies that that I really enjoyed. You know, he his taste was much more like three guitar players all playing the same riff and that was heavy and huge. And my taste was was evolving and I wanted to hear really snaky guitar parts that interacted with each other in a really funny way. So the long and the short of it was that eventually I just arrived at a place maybe I finally got on my feet as a as a fully grown person and I wanted to I wanted to break up the Bun family players. And it was a tragedy for us in our friendship. Kevin had supported me uh emotionally and financially even for a long time and it kind of propped me up and now we were as successful as we'd ever been together in our partnership but I wanted to do my own thing and I think part of that was that Kevin also had a had a real job he worked in IT um, for Nordstrom at the time and he worked a job and had was making a car payment you know he 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 aspired to be a rock musician but he saw it as a component of his larger life plan and 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 always had you know he'd gone on to get a master's degree he believed that he could as he used to put it that he could have it all that he could be a professional and also be a rock musician and that and I think that was um some some of the appeal to him was that he could see himself on the big stage and in the big rock magazines and when people said so Kevin what's your story he could say well I also am you know I also have a master's degree I'm also a successful middle class business person right and that that was that was going to that in a way that was his version of alternative and that was going to be a um that was going to be a new version of like you to the world but of course maintaining that maintaining a full-time job maintaining that life um takes a lot of time and energy and also it it divorced him from uh it's it's embarrassing to even put it this way but it, it divorced him from the street <laughs> um and you know i was 27 years old at that point I, I, I a lot of people were already telling me that i was too old to still be thinking in terms of like what's going on on the street um even then i was i was under a lot of pressure to like grow up for christ's sake um can i ask you something of course um when you say you you suddenly had a desire to well not suddenly but you had a desire to break up the band you actually don't hear a lot of stories where one member decides to dismantle a band and start from scratch. You hear, you know, singers being kicked out and the band reforms with the same name or, or a singer moves on and starts a new band. But when you say dismantle the band, do you actually mean like take control and say this band is no more? 
Yeah. And that was, that was very hard to do. Kevin and I were partners in the band and we saw each other and had seen each other, had invested a lot of energy in being a songwriting partnership. But there was a, there was a clear imbalance, which was that I could play our songs by myself. Sure. Like even songs that we wrote together, once he taught me the guitar part, then I could sing them and play the guitar and it would still be the song. Uh, Kevin didn't sing. He was just a guitar player. And, and so that imbalance was always in, I mean, it's in any situation where you have a lead singer unless, like in, for instance, in the Harvey Danger situation, Sean Nelson is the lead singer, but he didn't play an instrument. And so he didn't have that ability. He couldn't just go do a, a solo show. He could only sing if the whole band was there. But because I played guitar, I had this other ability. And when I started to write my own songs, I now was in a position where I could just go, I could write a whole album of songs and go play them. And I didn't need anybody, anybody's help. So I did, it wasn't just that I left the band. There wasn't a band um, if, I, if I broke it up. And it was, it was very hard to do, but... Once I decided to do it, I felt a great relief. And in a way, you know, Kevin's and my relationship has never recovered. I mean, he, and, 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 and that's also partly because he then pursued um, a life in the straight world and now I think plays guitar with some guys on the weekends, but he didn't he didn't go find another band. And partly that was because he wasn't part of the street culture anymore. And if it was, if the Bun family players weren't gonna, um, take it to the next level, then that, then that was the end of the road for him. Right. Um, and I think one of the turning points for me came at one of our last shows, one of the last Bun family players shows where, one of the opening bands was this band with a, with a female lead singer and, you know, front person who was a really dynamic performer and a, and a great vocalist and, a, and an exceptional guitar player. And I remember watching their set before, my, before the Bun Family Players show and feeling like, you know, wow, now that's a person I would be interested in collaborating with. And it wasn't, you know, it wasn't like I was breaking up with one uh, girl to start dating another, but I did talk to this woman whose name was Stephanie after the show and complimented her on her, her playing. And um, at the time, I, you know, after she got done, she walked up to the bar and got a drink and had just finished her set and I came over and was complimentary toward her and she didn't know I was in the headlining band. <laughs> so she was a little bit, dismissive of me like yeah sure guy you know thanks for your thanks for coming you know buy a t-shirt <laughs> and then you know a half an hour later she was watching me perform and came off the stage and was like oh my god i didn't realize who you were and i i would love to get together and and do some songs sometime anytime you want you know so when i broke up the bun family players I, I, I didn't have a plan. I didn't know what was going to happen next, but I ended up 
calling up Stephanie and she and I worked on, I went over to her little four track studio and we worked on some songs together. Some of them were songs I'd written in the Bun Family Players, but was kind of taking with me, repurposing. And some were songs I was writing at the time in a big kind of burst of creativity I had when I broke up the band. And um, Stephanie had her own band. And so she was pretty coy with me in the sense that she wanted to help me, but she wasn't going to, she didn't, she wasn't able to start a band with me. She was going to help me, but she had a lot of confidence that her own band was going to be the next big thing. So she was cheating on her band. She was cheating on her band a little bit. Yeah. And we were, we were making demo tapes together and we, we sang harmonies together in a way that we both really liked. And, she was a very creative, immensely creative person. So she was helping me with my demo. That's what, that's how we phrased it. And pretty soon it became clear that what we really needed to do was make a professional sounding demo. And so we recruited a couple of friends of mine, um, Michael on the drums and a guy named Bo on the bass, both of whom were in other bands and in the case of Bo, his band was really being groomed locally to be kind of the next band of cute young guys that were going to make a, make a shot at the big time. This is, you know, the post-Harvey Danger Seattle world where all of a sudden there were a lot of bands that wanted to get a hit on the radio. And Bo was in a band called Saverna Park and they wore nail polish and eyeliner and black shirts with black ties and black pants, you know, pre-emo, but like pro, a proto kind of punk pop emo band. Okay. And, and a lot of people said about Saverna Park that if they had come along two years later, they would have been a huge band. But they were just ahead of that, just ahead of that curve. So Bo was helping me. Michael was helping me. Stephanie was helping me. They were all very generously helping me get a set together, which we would then record and make a demo. And I would use that demo to get a record deal. And once I had a record deal, then I would put a band together. This was the, this was the project. Sure. And so we, we started rehearsing and we just really liked playing with each other. And in the studio, we started, or in the re- rehearsal studio, we started to talk like, well, maybe we should play a show or two. You know, before we record our demo, we should probably play a couple of shows just to really get our sea legs. And so we booked a couple of shows, and our first show was opening for a band, uh, some good friends of mine uh, who had a band called uh, Sycophant. And Sycophant was one of these mid-90s bands that actually, much bigger than Harvey Danger, they were able to sell out club shows pretty routinely. Um, and they were, they were built around the... Um, uh, what would you describe it? Uh, the, uh, they had a stand-up bass and an acoustic guitar and a kind of toy trap kit. Sounds um, like Rockabilly. It was a, it was very much a rockabilly looking setup, and the and the stand up bass player actually had a pretty good pompadour, 
But the music they were making was very violent femsy. Okay, okay. Right, so it was Billy Braggy, violent femsy, acoustic, kind of keening acoustic pop music that uh, that had found a found a real kind of pretty burgeoning audience in Seattle. It was a it was a combination of hippie girls and rockabilly dudes, and I mean, people danced at their shows. They were they had a lot of the elements. They had a lot of charisma. And so they were playing this, you know, sold out show and they'd been fans of the Bun Family Players and I asked them if my new band could play our first show with them. And we did and it, it, it clicked immediately. It clicked with the audience. It clicked, the band clicked on stage. And the following day, it was, a, it was the most remarkable thing in a, in a, at that point I'd been playing music in Seattle for half a dozen years and had never connected. I, I, we'd connected with, with our small audience, but had never connected with whatever that, um, whatever the stream is. To, I'm sorry. Do you feel like there was at this point like a backlash against grunge? Like it was time for something new to be latched onto? No, it was way past the backlash. The backlash had been going on for uh, for <laughs> several since years. Nirvana broke, huh? Yeah, I mean people <laughs> people hated grunge even in the even when grunge was happening, and you know, um, by 1998, grunge was a distant memory. And um, and yet, still like a like a bugbear uh, that that hovered over the town. It was still sure. a golem here. <laughs> yeah, and people wanted it gone, and they wanted Seattle to be known as the kind of town that produced smart, weird, angry, angry-ish pop music uncompromising rather than angry. You know, we wanted always to be thought of as uncompromising. And, and so we were, we were, we were so like past grunge and it ran. What was confusing about it was that punk rock kept rearing its ugly head over and over throughout the eighties and nineties, you know, in 1980, People said, "Oh, punk is dead, right?" It's it, it was already four years old at that point, or fourteen, depending on who you ask. And successive times throughout the eighties, when you thought that there was no new life to punk rock music, then all of a sudden it would reassert itself as the the core uh, the the core place where new music was coming from. It's always good for a, a backlash. After every big wave of music, there's right, room but, for punk. But unlike ska music, which also never dies, like ska never dies, and and every every new year there's a new freshman class that has never heard ska before, right? And they're like, "This is incredible! This is amazing!" And everybody gets into ska again. But ska, you know, ska will have these moments where it kind of 
comes up and it's like, oh, now No Doubt is the new band. And oh, now... Mighty, like, mighty boss tones. Yeah, right. Like, now we're listening to this again? Really? Is that... <laughs> can we? Is there really... There, because ska has no room to grow, you wouldn't think, but it kind of keeps managing. Uh, punk rock is so... It's such a big tent that it can reassert itself over and over and over again. And each time the next generation feels like they are tearing down the big bloated whale of rock music. Well, and to some extent, I think they are like each time. Yeah. Like but it, each the balloon blows up and they pop it. Except, except that cycle is getting shorter and shorter each Agreed. time. Agreed. It's just like, uh, yeah, you're tearing. You're basically just tearing down the punk rock bands of two years ago. Now, <laughs> like they've be, they've all become bloated, and now now it's time for a new a new generation. So in in 1998, there was actually happening in Seattle a punk resurgence too, and and the the scene was kind of split between two camps. One of which was sort of typified by the Murder City Devils, and again a very sort of black pants, black shirt aesthetic. And then there were all these other bands that were making this weird, twisty pop music. And there was a, a maybe an artificial divide or a, a Beatles versus Stones kind of competition in the town that was really promoted by the, the, um, by the local weekly here, The Stranger. The Stranger came out and made a real point of being the, pa- uh, the paper that, that approved of punk rock and disapproved of, of whatever this sort of like hard to describe, lame, um, horned rim glasses pop music that, that, that was on the other side of the cultural coin. It, it, I gotta ask: Is the stranger like a an existentialist, absurdist reference, or was it? It, it is, in fact, yes. Uh, it, they um, they had a sort of a Camus like picture on their as their as their mascot. Okay, for many years, but they were the stranger was founded by some people who were founded by the people who originally started the Onion. Oh, okay, and then they saw they left the onion behind and came out to Seattle and started the stranger and they had just their their uh their editorial policy was we're not here to you know our job isn't to report the news our job is to make an interesting newspaper and cre- and if if that involves creating controversy or if that involves endorsing one band and dissing another then that's what you know that's our deal we're not we're not our music section isn't going to be isn't going to try to accurately reflect the wide variety of music in the scene why do we care we're just going to have opinions about things and promote what we like so they hired a guy as their music editor they hired a guy named Everett True and Everett True was an English uh, a music journalist who had made his name s- supposedly discovering grunge. He was the he was the guy who worked for the NME in the UK, who had written extensively about Nirvana and Tad and 
whole. <laughs> and in a way, he'd been he'd been a real barnacle, like a music business barnacle. He'd glommed on to the grunge dudes and kind of followed them everywhere and reported their story exhaustively. And then kind of in an unseemly way laid claim to their success. And, and, and it's true that there was a, a sort of a seminal tour that Mud Honey, Tad, and Nirvana did of the UK in 1989. And it was the NME and Everett True jumping on these bands and saying, this is the future of rock that in a way did set grunge up to be propelled into the mainstream. But Everett, you know, laid claim to that in a way that was a little bit like, well, yeah, I guess. I mean, that's one, that's one possible version of the story. But, but he didn't then go on to become editor-in-chief of the, the Sunday Times. You know what I mean? Like 10 years later, he was still sort of eking out a living as a music journalist and the stranger in what they thought was probably a real coup hired him to come be the music editor of the newspaper here, hired him away from London. Here comes this kind of famous yesterday's news music journalist. And Everett True's first issue of The Stranger, the first article he wrote was a review of the first show that the Western State Hurricanes played, opening for Sycophant. And he came out swinging. And his, I mean, this is, the, this is like his introductory piece. Hello, Seattle. I'm the new music editor of The Stranger. And let me tell you, this band that everybody must think is good, I guess, is terrible. And he just ripped us a new one. Let me uh, let me throw a dramatic pause in here and tell uh, tell our listeners really quickly about Smile and PDF Pen. If you work with PDFs, you need PDF Pen, the multi-purpose PDF editor. PDF Pen can make changes, fix typos, resize images, combine PDFs, and extract pages into a new PDF. It can perform optical character recognition or OCR to digitize scanned documents as part of a paperless workflow. It can even redact sensitive information by removing it permanently and completely from a PDF. PDF Pen 6 includes Microsoft Word export, an editing bar for faster workflow, retina graphics, auto-saving and document versions, and much more. You can apply an image of your signature to a contract while you're on the go. You can fill and save PDF forms. You can even correct typos in a PDF when you don't have the original document. You can export Microsoft Word format for comprehensive editing remove a cover page or make a new PDF from a chapter of a larger document, and you can scan and OCR documents to create a completely paperless workflow. PDF Pen 6 is available for $59.95, and you can download a free demo and see how easily you can edit PDFs with PDF Pen. Head to smilesoftware.com slash PDF Pen for more information, and also check out uh, PDF Pen for iPad and iPhone, and PDF Pen Scan Plus, which brings mobile OCR to iPad and the iPhone. All right, sorry for the interruption. We were talking no. about Everett True and his review 
No problem. Um, and, and it was, in a way, it was like a, um, Everett True like planted a flag in the ground where he said, this band, the Western State Hurricanes, represents everything that's wrong with music. Wow, that's, and he, yeah, that's hard. And he said, you know, they're snaky guitar parts and they're over, over wordy lyrics and they're stupid black frame glasses and they're dumb bowl haircuts and they're, you know, lame corduroy pants. Everything about <laughs> them is, um, is what's terrible and what's good about music he said was and he you know he started to kind of promote the idea that olympia washington and the underground lo-fi punk rock scene from olympia was the true wellspring of what was good in the northwest and we needed to refocus our attention back on kind of Olympia bands and noisy post-punky lo-fi bands and away from whatever this new trend was, this terrible trend of these bands that were making this, you know, difficult pop music that was, that was really garbage. This is uh, the review of our first show. Sure. Now to understand this, I need to know how much weight in the music scene did this guy have among the people who attended shows? Well, it was a, it was an unusual moment because the stranger had always been the paper from the, from the moment of its founding. It, it very quickly became the paper of the underground alternative arts, gay young people scene in Seattle. There were, there were two alternative weeklies. The other one, the Seattle Weekly, was much older and was perceived to represent the middle class, the uh, commuters, the, the people who watched Friends <laughs> and Seinfeld. You know, the, the like unhip, still, still young people, still people going to see shows but just kind of the ones that don't get it. Sure. The ones that are the mainstream, for lack of a better term. The Weekly was perceived to be the mainstream. The Stranger was perceived to be the underground. The degree to which either of the, those uh, ideas is true or not, or was true then, who knows. But The Stranger was much bigger than Everett True. And in a way, it wouldn't have mattered who the music editor of The Stranger was. If The Stranger didn't like you, that was a that was going to have some impact because it, The Stranger has always been sort of regarded as like the voice. Now, Everett True was their celebrity music reviewer. And so all eyes in the city were kind of on him at first. But he, he entered the scene so with such a polemical, opinionated view that he did have a, he did have quite a bit of influence, but he also was, in some ways, you know, everybody realized that he was a 
that he was controversial for the sake of controversy. And although those may have been his real opinions, he was such an exaggerated person that he didn't, he didn't really fit. Well, after this first show, the fact that Everett True came out with both, with both guns blazing in his first article was offset by the fact that everybody else that had been at the show raved about it. And it, this was the very dawn of music blogging, right? 1998. I didn't even have the internet uh, in my apartment, but people who did have the internet came up to me on the street the following day and said, oh my God, you should read some of the blogs about your show last night. And I didn't know, I didn't even know what that meant, but, a lot, but people who worked at jobs, people that were on the internet were saying that there was this, there was this enormous reaction to, to the show. And combined with the reaction that, that Everett True was stoking, we booked another show pretty soon after, you know, within a week or two. Because we were trying, you know, we, we were just trying to get our sea legs to make this demo, right? Not, none of the people in the band had committed to even being in a band with me. Sure. But by our second show, which we played on a, a Wednesday night without the benefit of a headliner, uh, suddenly all these people were there. And, and they were all uh, buzzing. They were buzzing. It was, a, it was an audible buzz. This whole business of like, this band's got a lot of buzz. When you are a band that has a lot of buzz, you actually do hear buzzing. <laughs> and I, I walked into this club where I had played a hundred times with the Bun Family Players, but something was different. People were looking at me and whispering. And I was walking through the bar with my guitar case and, and it was like, oh, and there he is, buzz, 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 buzz. And we played our second show and, we, and the band was clicking. We felt like we were clicking with each other. And the audience clicked with us. It was the first time that I'd ever really felt that. Like, these aren't my friends here. These aren't people that I've seen around. These are just strangers, people who have come to see what all the fuss is about. And it's only our second show. What is this? What is going on? And the following week, The Stranger came out, and there was a big article by Everett True that started off saying, the Western State Hurricanes, Seattle's worst band, Played another show last week that was also terrible. <laughs> and so Everett True began every column that he wrote for the paper for the next three months with a paragraph at least about what a terrible band the Western State Hurricanes were. And every show we played, we had double the attendance of the show prior. Can can you attribute any of that to the bad reviews? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it was the classic example of there's no such thing as bad press. Especially when there's a blogosphere to counteract it. Well, and then there was this blogosphere, as you describe it, which, which still I had no access to. And I don't, I, 
to this day don't know what was said there, but people were blogging about the band and the um, this, and it was blowing up in a way that I couldn't account for. Because up until that moment, if you weren't endorsed by one of the two local alternative papers, there wasn't a chance that you could blow up. But here, like this paper was taking, the stranger was taking an active antagonistic relationship to us. And yet still we were drawing what to me were unprecedented crowds. And it was, a, it, it was even more unusual because the people who were coming to the shows were suddenly the people I had always wanted, I had always wished would come to my shows. Uh, I looked out and there was Ken Stringfellow from the Posies and there was Jason Finn from the Presidents of the USA and there was uh, Jonathan Poneman of Sub Pop and there were all these pretty faces of people in other bands who had never looked at me sideways before. People that, you know, I would, I'd been, I mean, some of these people were like bartenders that I'd been, I'd been drinking in their bar for five years and they wouldn't nod their head at me. But now they were coming up to me and saying like, hey, John, like they'd known me forever. And I could see how getting famous does a number on people. You know, I can see how it really has a terrible effect on people uh particularly if they're young and have never and this is their first experience of the world because i was already 29 years old and had spent 10 years in seattle or or almost eight years in seattle not being appreciated at all and now everybody wanted to be my friend and i was and we weren't even that big we were just you know we were just starting out to be a band that like gets famous when you're 21 years old and everybody has a smile on their face for you and everybody wants to be your friend, it has to, it has to affect you for the rest of your life. I had a, I had a healthy amount of suspicion about it. And these people who wanted to be my friend, I had a lot of archives of memory of them most decidedly not being interested in being my friend. Some of these people I had made concentrated attempts to be their friend before and had been rejected. And now they were crowding around me. So I was very uh, cynical about it. And one of those people was uh, was Jonathan Poneman of Sub Pop Records, and he and I had had, ne- had he I was, had never been on his radar before, and I liked him immediately. And so after our third or fourth show, he approached me and said, "I think you guys are great, and I'd like to sign you to Sub Pop." Well, at this point, we had we had four shows under our belt, and the other three people in the band had not. Um, still were like focusing on their other bands, right? I mean, Saverna Park at this point was, um, in every respect, a much bigger band than the Western State Hurricanes. They, were, they had been on MTV's The Real World Season 1. <laughs> they were headed to the big time. But when all of this happened so fast, we had a band meeting, Bo and Michael and Stephanie and me, 
and went around the table and all three of them said, you know what? This music that we're playing in the Western State Hurricanes is the music that we want to play. This is the, this is the closest to the, the music we want to make as we've ever made. So everybody agreed that they were going to, they were going to focus on this band. And again, it was a, this was a completely unprecedented experience for me. Like every one of these people was a really good musician. They were all successful in their own corners of the city. They were all cute and good performers. We all shared an aesthetic and they wanted to be in my band. Like I never felt so on top of the world in a way. I was, I had finally achieved at 29 years old, all of the dreams that I had imagined at 23 years old. And, um, we talked to sub pop for a long time, but we had this, we were full of confidence at this point. We felt like, well, you know, why would we sign to sub pop? We will surely also be attractive to universal and Sony and polygram and whatever other record labels there were out there at the time that don't half of which don't exist anymore. Um, we were not coming at it from an indie model at all we i wasn't even aware of of i mean independent music had always seemed to me to be a euphemism for couldn't get signed and i had no allegiance to the idea of doing it yourself like putting out hand pressing your own records and driving around in a ford econoline selling them to people at youth centers around the States. This wasn't my dream, right? <laughs> You're describing my life. <laughs> well, sure. And it, and it ended up being my life too later. But at the time, that wasn't the school I was coming from. The school I was coming from was you make a killer record and then you have a video on MTV and it goes to the top of the charts and then you have an airplane that has the, <laughs> it has the Zoso uh glyphs on the side and it has shag carpeting in it and you fly back and forth from the playboy mansion in chicago to the playboy mansion in california like i was i i the stranger was absolutely right about me i was not underground in my aspirations or in my cultural touchstones and the fact that i was living in a car um didn't make me underground. There were guys living in really big houses who were more underground than I was just because that was an aesthetic. So, uh, you know, through a series of, of bad decisions, we kind of alienated sub pop and proceeded along the road as though all of this fame and good fortune was inevitable and would inevitably result in us being a, a hit band. And we had no recordings. We had no hit on the radio. We were just a buzz band in Seattle at, for a moment, you know. But having never been one before, all any of us could think was, 
this is, you know, we are the next big thing. And we played, we were together for exactly one year. And in the course of that year, we kind of achieved a lot of the milestones that you dream of as a, as a Seattle band, as a young Seattle band who can't get a good show. You know, we went to South by Southwest. We played the Showbox. We, we played some sold-out shows. We had all of our heroes come up to us at various times and tell us that they liked our band. You know, it was a really nice year. But over the course of the year, a couple of things happened. For me personally, I realized that I didn't, I didn't feel any better. Like all of these things were happening to my band, but I, didn't, I wasn't any happier. Every person that came up to me and said, dude, I love your band. And I would be like, wow, I like your band too. <laughs> and then they would, you know, they'd give me a high five and they'd walk off and I still felt empty inside. You know what I mean? Like I was, sure. all of this approval wasn't filling uh, these empty halls in my soul in the way I thought they would. At 29, I was achieving what I thought at 23 was all a man could want. But I was 29, uh, 29 now, and I wanted more, or I wanted something different. I wasn't sure what. And on the part of my bandmates, I think over the course of that year, the, the tempo of our popularity didn't keep exploding upward in a you know in a rocket like trajectory you know it kind of, the the parabola started to level off because we still hadn't made an album nor had we signed a record deal we were just we were just waiting and fielding some offers and talking to some people but we kept thinking that like lightning was going to strike that some that you know uh, that George Martin was going to come out of retirement and offer to make our album, and and in a way, the problem also was that it wasn't clear that we had a hit single really in our holster. Everybody was waiting for me to write the song they all felt like I I could write next. Everett True hadn't picked one out yet. No, and Everett True continued to despise us. Everett True, very curious. I, I was working at a, at a newsstand at the time and about seven months into this process where my band kept getting bigger and he kept hating on me in the newspaper, he started to come into the magazine store where I worked because we sold English newspapers. We sold the NME. And he would come in and buy the NME and after a couple of visits, it was clear to me that he that somebody had told him that that was me. I was the guy from the Western State Hurricanes who was selling him the NME. I, I never said anything. I just sold him the newspaper and went back to reading uh, Family Handyman or whatever magazine I was reading at the time. But so after about his third visit, he came in very sheepishly and walked up to the counter and he was like, you know, hello, I'm Everett True and I know who you are and... and um, you know, it's all just, it's nothing personal. It's all just business, you know. And I was like, don't worry about it. You've done us more 
of a favor than you can possibly know. Every time you write a bad review of us, more and more people come to our show. So how can I begrudge you? <laughs> At which point, Everett True started coming into my work every day. What? And hanging around. Because I, he was lonely, I guess. <laughs> and he recognized in me a kindred, what he perceived to be a kindred spirit. I was somebody who could talk intelligently about things, about music, or or the fact that I didn't hate him maybe was up in the plus column. But anyway, he started to come into my work and sit and like shoot the shit with me. And it was, you know, it was a job at a magazine store. Like I was kind of trapped. A lot of people came in and shot the shit with me. Everett True now was on this list and he would come and sit and sit for 45 minutes and and banter with me and he would stay there until someone else came in and, and wanted to talk and then he'd kind of, you know, get shy and excuse himself and run out and then go write an, a, another article in the newspaper about how we were the worst thing that had ever happened to Seattle music. It, well, he was very... I was afraid you were going to say he wrote a good review and everything went to hell right there. No, no, he never ever did. He never, <laughs> he never changed his tone. He did start to write about me separate from the band and he would he started to write like appreciative little blurbs about me as a person you know he kind <laughs> nice. of Im- implying that i that ultimately i was a credit to seattle if only i abandoned <laughs> my terrible band anyway so within a year the western state hurricanes had become uh, like in some ways, uh, and this is all internally, internal to the band, we became a bloated dinosaur in just a year because the experience of being a big buzz band had inflated all of our egos. Everybody in the band, in their individual way, had a new kind of ego. And what had been a project to put my demo tape together had evolved very quickly into a into the repository of all four of these people's entire ambition to be a rock star and it wasn't happening fast enough it wasn't happening the right way i was too difficult to deal with because i was so i was such a curmudgeon <laughs> none of and the, the the other thing was none of us had any idea what we were doing we were just we were actually ripe to be exploited if someone had come along a manager or a record label and had said hey you guys i'll take care of everything and they had gone and secured us a million dollar record deal and, and had been and or at least a charter airplane <laughs> or at least you know like first class tickets on an airplane if someone had taken charge of us, we would have been uh, – uh, they, they could have like really taken us to the races because none of us knew anything what we were doing. And we did a terrible job of managing our own career. And when that band broke up, we went to South by Southwest. Our friends in the band Death Cab for Cutie had just released their first record. And 
they were very much of the school of like, we released this record and we're selling copies out of our van. And it wasn't clear exactly how this was happening to me, but Death Cab for Cutie was selling some records in Sacramento. They were selling some records in Austin. And they were only selling 20 records in Sacramento and 25 records in Austin, but that seemed like an enormous accomplishment. And we were not. We didn't have an album. We weren't selling records anywhere. We were still selling a cassette tape at our shows. And so the band broke up and it was very, it was very, it was in, in some ways the hardest, uh, the hardest breakup in my life, the hardest thing for me to take because here was the thing that had finally achieved success. We were on our way still. We were, we were headed to the show and maybe when I got there, I would finally find a thing that filled the empty halls in my soul. But not even having achieved the next rung of the ladder, the band was already breaking up and breaking up kind of in a sort of a mealy-mouthed way of just like, well, this isn't that fun anymore and blankety-blank. And, it, you know, and it, what, what you find out in those moments is like some people really dream about being in a rock band, but what they but they really don't want to leave their home. Sure. You know, there are a lot of people who dream about being musicians, but they're, they're, they never really think about what, it, what the actual life is going to look like. <laughs> and when they get in the van and they go out and they do it one time, they come home and they're like, oh, fuck, that sucks. I don't want to be, I don't want to stay in a hotel. I want to be home. <laughs> hotel? What? Like a hotel, you know, like <laughs> I want to be, I want to be at home where I know where everything is and I want to wake up at the same time every day. Try sleeping in the back of a stolen U-Haul in a grocery store parking lot for a few months. Well, and that's, and ultimately <laughs> like the, the tour that we did to South by Southwest, we didn't have a van. We, we took Stephanie's mother's minivan and we laid all the guitar cases and amps flat. We took the middle seat out. We laid everything flat on the floor, covered it covered the amps and guitar cases with blankets and then drove down to Texas. And it was terrible. It was not, it was like really amateur hour. It was unsafe and it was <laughs> uncomfortable. There were five of us in a, in a minivan with only one bench seat. And, you know, if you, I mean, you're not supposed to sleep on top of your amps. It says right in the owner's manual. And crash symbols are really dangerous if you crash. Oh, and all of it. I mean, nothing, nothing was tied down, right? If we had crashed and rolled, <laughs> that would have just been scrambled eggs in there. Well, so it was. Wait, we're, we're at one hour right now, and I'm going to okay. let you finish. I'm going to let you finish. I'm going to let you finish. But I do want to throw in a quick uh, nod to our sponsor, Squarespace, this week. Mm -hmm. This episode has been brought to you by Squarespace, the all in one platform that makes it fast and easy to create your own professional website, portfolio, and online store. For a free trial and 10% off, go to squarespace.com and use the offer code Brett sent me. Two T's, Brett sent me. Squarespace makes it easy and simple to create a beautiful design for your custom website using a drag and drop interface. They also make it easy to get help with 24-7 support through live chat and email. 
Uh, you don't have to pick up the phone. Located in New York City, Dublin, and Portland, you can reach Squarespace support anytime you need it, no matter where you are in the world. Plans start at $8 a month and include a free domain name if you sign up for a year. Their templates include responsive design, and every site comes with an online store. Get started with a free trial, no credit card required, and get started building your website today. When you sign up for Squarespace, make sure you use the offer code BRETTSENTME to get 10% off and show your support for Systematic. We thank Squarespace for their continued support of 5x5 and Systematic. Squarespace, a better web starts with your website. All right, so you've got a band that's that's slowly breaking apart. Go ahead. Yeah, and, and breaking apart just from, just because uh, everybody's expectations were just slightly different. I mean, that, our, our tour was very uncomfortable. And my perception of it was that this was the first uncomfortable tour and then each successive one would get more comfortable. But other people in the band were like, well, that was uncomfortable and I never want to do it again. <laughs> and so the band broke up in a very kind of inglorious way and it was such a shock to me, the idea that I could get that close to achieving my my dream, what at that point was the only dream I'd had. And to have it taken away by other people and their needs um, was just a lightning bolt to me. And I decided in that moment, and the funny thing was at our last show, I was standing there just kind of like stone-faced, full of horror. Um, and this reoccurring character in my story, Jason Finn, drummer of the Presidents of the USA, walked up to me at the show and said, hey, you know, don't worry about it. I'll be the drummer in your band. We can just, we won't, we won't even have to take a break. We can just start tomorrow. And uh, the Western State Hurricanes will continue on. And we can find a, you know, we can find a bass player. And at that point, my friend Mike walked up and he was like, I'll be the bass player. And these guys were, were great musicians. Like it didn't have to end in that moment. I could have said, yeah, right. These guys were just here to help me make a demo anyway. Let's just take it and ride there was something in me that was devastated because it had happened so organically. And so it seemed meant to be. That's such a demon. The idea that like, this is meant to happen. And these really good musicians offering to, to pick up the baton and carry it for me. I was like, you know what? Thank you. But no, like the Western state hurricanes are over. It's all done. And, and I quit music. I quit music. And I, I went home and I, I was living with Bo at the time. And I said, you know what? I'm going to put some clothes in a bag. Whatever I leave here in the apartment, you can keep or you can put out on the sidewalk. And I went to my job and I said, I'm given my two weeks notice. Is this the newsstand job? the newsstand job, which was at the time the best job I'd ever had. I worked there four years and I just, I, it was like the dream job for a musician. Sure. I worked 20 hours a week and I got to sit and read magazines all day. <laughs> I quit my job. I, I, I gave notice on my apartment and I went 
down to the travel agency on Broadway and I said, what is the cheapest one-way ticket you can get me to Europe? And she found a $400 ticket to London. And I, I flew to London and I walked out of Heathrow Airport and started walking. And I, I walked to the English Channel and I took a boat over to Holland and I started walking again and I walked from Amsterdam to Istanbul. Wow, this isn't in your Wikipedia page. I guess, I guess not. Whoever is updating my Wikipedia page is, is uh, maybe it, the last, last time it was uh, updated was 1998. That, that is a good walk. Yeah, so I walked from Amsterdam to Istanbul, and that took me six months, and it took me about, you know, like 16 um, lifetimes. And how many pairs of shoes? Just one pair of shoes. Wow. But definitely 16 soul lives. And the entire time I was like, you know, I mean, I was, I was 30 by that point. And I was like, I'm 30 years old. I'm out here walking across the Czech Republic like some kind of dumbass. Uh, and my music career is over. And I don't, I don't have a plan for what's next. Uh, and walking across... Europe doesn't seem to be, it, it, it's not a very good business model. You know, it's not leading me to anything. It's just an event, um, like a kind of cleansing by fire. Uh, but I had no intention of picking up a guitar again, of ever teaching another bass player how to play the, you know, the bass line of, Unsalted Butter, which was you know, at that even at that time a very old song, and I just figured like when I get back to the states, I'm gonna have to, I'm gonna have to start my life over. I'm 30 years old. I'm gonna have to go into banking or or something. You know, I couldn't even in, I couldn't imagine doing anything in alternative culture. I didn't want to write. Uh, I did. I, if I, I didn't want to write articles for the stranger, I didn't want to be a uh, a playwright or uh, an actor. I wanted to be divorced from that from the whole world of people who you know were so, in some ways, you know, as small as as arts people can be, and. I didn't know. I didn't know what was going to happen. Well, so what happened? Well, you're probably going to have to have me on for another show. I'm more than happy to do that. <laughs> because I came back from my walk and I was I was I was devastated. I was blown out. The walk had not collected my thoughts. If anything, it had distributed them over 5,000 kilometers. <laughs> and I was walking around Seattle just kind of in a daze, uh, just sort of zombified. I went back to the university, but I just didn't feel at home there anymore. Again, I was, you know, 30 years old and taking classes at the college. It just seemed like um, I, was the, I was the classic, like, 
fully grown guy living in his parents' basement. And a non-traditional student. And a non-traditional student. And I was dropping a friend off in front of his apartment one night. And, uh, and by dropping off, I mean I was in the passenger seat because my, uh, uh, my girlfriend was driving and my friend was in the back seat and we were dropping him off at his apartment. And we pulled up out front of his building on 19th Avenue in Seattle. And there were a bunch of people milling around out front. This is probably six months after I got back from my six-month-long walk. A bunch of people milling around out front. Who, uh, people I knew from the rock scene. And I, I got out of the car to you know, fold the seat forward to let my friend out of the back seat. And all these people standing around outside this bar were like, hey, John, wow, it's great to see you. Wow, you know, it's been so long. Like, that's great that you came to this event. And I was like, oh, really? What's the event? What's going on? <laughs> and they're like, what? You mean you didn't come? You didn't come? for this you're not here for this and i was like well you know I, sure i guess i did like what you know and i'm look, looking at my girlfriend in the car like i guess you better park it's something that i have to go into now i was like what is it and they said harvey danger is premiering their new music video and they're having a world premiere video music party in this little theater I was like, oh, how fun. Like super not into it. Pretty bummed actually. Like I'm going to have to go into this room and socialize with all these people that I know from music and watch watch Harvey Danger's new music video, which is going to depress me, you know? Sure. And I went into the party and I'm standing there kind of, you know, holding a ginger ale and talking to people on one end of the room and across the room on the very far end of this super crowded room, I see Sean Nelson, singer of Harvey Danger. He's unmistakable because he's taller than everybody in the room. And he also has this big pile of hair. And I see him across the room and he looks over the tops of everybody's heads and he sees me and he, he beckons to me. And I was like, oh, Sean Nelson wants to say hello. You know, he, not, he and I didn't know each other very well. He was a big rock star at the time. So... You know, I excused myself and I pushed my way through the crowd. I went over to Sean and said, you know, hey, how's it going, man? And he was like, good. I heard you were, I heard you were here. I'm, I'm really glad you're here, actually. And I was like, oh, yeah, really? And he was like, yeah, I really have been meaning to talk to you. I think we should go get lunch together. I have some ideas I want to run by you. I'm going to offer you the option here. Entirely up to you. You want to leave this as a cliffhanger for a third episode, or do you want to continue? No, I think we should leave it as a cliffhanger. All right, I think it's a good cliffhanger because that's kind of uh, it's kind of the beginning of the present, isn't it? It's the beginning of the present. I I am going to very much look forward to hearing about that. Then I'm sorry that I didn't. You know, I could have hustled the pace of the Western no. State Hurricane story. I didn't want you to hustle. Okay. Honestly, I would have let you talk for two hours if you wanted to, but. <laughs> no, I think it's good. Now everybody's going to be like, come on! Jeez! Yeah, we'll get all those tweets again. When are you going to have episode three? <laughs> all right. Well, thank you very much for taking the time. Thank you, Brett. And I appreciate uh, you being interested, and I'm enjoying very much telling you these stories. This is a fun series. 
All right. Well, thanks, John. And thanks, everybody, for listening. We'll see you in a week. Bye.